I just thought it was disgusting. So I made the decision to exit Tesla at that point. I made the decision for all the right moral reasons, and it cost me absolute, you know, millions, literally millions in foregone upside. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Bill Blaine. Bill, are you ready to join the mission? Oh, yeah. Sign me up. All right. Here we go. And I want to introduce you to the audience. Bill is a well-known financier and commentator on financial markets, contributor and editor of The Morning Porridge. His day job combines his role as strategist for Shard Capital, the leading investment management firm, and heading the firm's alternatives group, financing private debt, and equity deals and direct lending transactions. His clients include sovereign wealth funds, hedge funds, insurance and pension managers, credit funds, and family offices. Bill, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Oh, that's a great question. What do I bring in that's unique? What's my USP, as they say? Oh, well, the th first thing is I'm old enough to not really give an SHIT anymore. You know, I just get on with it and tell it as it is. The second thing is, which other people have told me, is I'm one of three people in the world who really understands the bond market. Now, the problem there is that of the others, one of them's already dead, the other one's in a lunatic asylum, and I've quite forgotten everything I ever learned. Well, there's a uniqueness. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. We have to just figure anyway, out how to pull it I do out. Try and, I do try and tell it as it is and try and analyze markets with a, a sense of, yeah, really, really, but. Yeah. And that seems to work better than trying to persuade yourself to believe all the hype that one reads these days. I like what you said about, I really don't give a SHIT anymore because I feel a lot like that. In fact, I have a new way that I start every speech that I give this morning at 7.30, 8am. I was at an event in Thailand on a panel and they asked me to participate along with some other distinguished speakers. And I always start my thing. I said, I'm going to start with an apology because I am going to offend you and piss you off. And I'm going to just apologize for that right now before I get started. And, uh, I just, you know, I just have so much more, I, I see so many things and I, I feel like I got to speak up for some of the nonsense things that I see out there. And so I just don't give a shit anymore. So I feel the same way. Uh, Sometimes it's a good attitude to take. But well, it helps um, in the markets at, too. Yeah. At the same time, I have expensive hobbies to fuel. So um, I, I need to keep working, which is great fun because there is nothing quite as fascinating as global markets. Yeah, exactly. And uh, tell us a little bit about Morning Porridge and how it took over your Okay, life. yeah, Blaine's Morning Porridge. That's that's a great story because back in 2007, I was an investment banker working for one of the leading UK investment banks. I kind of got told I was going to get major promotion and I was a surefire for the job and I was told compiling a list 
of what my new department would look like. And of course, in that situation, you figure out the three people you need to get rid of. The problem was the guy who actually got the job, guess who was top of his list? So that was <laughs> me. So I was out the door. And I was wondering, what the hell do I do next? And I already had this great idea for a hedge fund. And this is 2007, just before the global financial crisis kicked off with the default of Northern, near default and liquidity run on Northern Rock, a British bank. And our plan was to go into leverage credit. If we'd done it, I'm sure we'd all ended up in jail. But as the market suddenly turned against all the financial institutions, the team that had assembled for this hedge fund, we realized that if banks were going to get bailed out, as turned into be the case, there was great value. So we came into a, you know, we, we got a trading position built up. We were talking with the banks, selling them back their own capital, raising our own. It turned into great fun. And I discovered very quickly that I went from being an investment banker running origination into becoming a hedge fund manager, which never really happened. I found myself as a bond broker, which meant I had to find things to talk to clients about every morning. So I started writing a morning commentary to send to them. I think it started off with about 30 of them. And I was thinking of something unique to call it. And I thought, well, what's my, you know, people are going to get this over breakfast. I'm a Scotsman, so let's call it the morning porridge. Well, now the morning porridge has about 12,000 subscribers. It has a good number of them who actually pay for the thing, which is great, because that covers the um, web hosting and the uh, email costs and everything. And 90% of the readership are market participants, mostly professional. But the rest include some major politicians on both sides of the pond, analysts outside the financial markets. And over time, I find it fascinating, the feedback I get from it. And it forms a lot of the real day job stuff that I do, which tends to be outside stocks and public bonds but in private debt and equity, where we're looking for real investment opportunities. Mm. My big thesis of the last 12 years has been just how distorted markets have become because of monetary experimentation. So I tend to look for real returns, and that's been great fun. So that there you go, Andrew, a very quick run through of what the morning porridge is. And most days I try and find something to comment about. I tell it exactly as it is. I always, whenever I'm using sarcasm, I'm kind to my American chums by putting in a sarcasm alert because I know Americans don't understand sarcasm. So I always put that in. And I love it when I get trolled by um, Americans calling me, uh, you know, know nothing or dumb because I, I dare to suggest things about their beloved former president's financial acumen. It's it's always great fun, and you get brick bats thrown at you, and you shake them off. Fantastic. And for the listeners out there, I believe we go to www.morningporridge.com. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. More, just call up morningporridge.com. You'll find it. You can subscribe for free, and you get three free articles per month. Or you can somehow you can chum out the enormous amount of ten pounds, which I think is about fifty cents these days to get it delivered fresh, warm and toasty to your mailbox every day.
You'll be fully nourished every day as you start your day. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, well, I think the great thing about making mistakes as an investment is they're supposed to be learning processes. You know, failure makes us stronger because we learn. That's not true. I keep making the same mistakes. My particular weakness is for airships. I absolutely love airships. I think the idea of uh, massive great big dirigibles floating over the world, carrying cargo and being able to hover over disaster sites, dispensing supplies or moving logisticals, logistics around the globe or even people out for a cruise. I think fantastic. So when I was relatively young, I remember discussing it with my grandfather because we used to go up to Dundee once a month and I was telling him about, I'd read something about it and he said, you should you should invest in that, Billy. And so I said, what does that mean? And he explained it. I think I put my pocket money into the airship company and lost the lot when it folded a year later. A few years later, as a young banker, again, airship industries came up and I thought, it's going to work this time. So I invested, lost a lot. And then I think it was about 10 years ago, there was yet another airship thing. And this thing was called the Flying Arse because it looked just like an enormous bottom. It was two dirigibles strapped together, hence the Flying Bottom. And I invested in <laughs> Or I tried to invest in that because it was a private equity deal. I actually tried to put the funds into that. But somebody else beat us to the uh, to the race. And guess what? They lost all their money on that one. So airships has been a bad one. Some of the other ones is timing. You know, buying UK bank stocks just before Northern Rock went into meltdown. Subsequently, some of them come back. But many of them haven't because they remain permanently scarred by that. Or, you know, doing lots of really serious analysis and market and concluding that all the world's growth is going to be in Southeast Asia and then piling into Chinese stocks a couple of days before Alibaba and Tencent are closed down with Jack Ma getting arrested or put in seclusion and losing you know significant amounts then. It's a mistake to think that we learn, always learn from our our mistakes, but clearly there are lessons. Another big mistake, and I'm sorry not to focus on one yeah. thing, Andrew, but another big mistake has been Tesla. I saw Tesla very early on, and I thought, wow, this is interesting. I like this. I invested, I think, for all the right reasons that I saw that electric vehicles were going to become very important. I immediately appreciated the then narrative about how important information and data was going to be in creating the possibility of auto driving. But then my confidence in the stock evaporated. And it was mainly because I let it get personal. I was very upset by the behavior of Elon Musk, particularly his attitude towards the British cave diver who was trying to rescue the children who were caught yeah. in a in Thailand. And I thought the way he treated that diver, accusing him of being a pedophile, was absolutely unforgivable. And then the way that it looks like he bought the courtroom to ensure that he didn't have to pay damages on that. I just thought it was disgusting. So I made a decision 
to exit Tesla at that point. I made the decision for all the right moral reasons, and it cost me absolute, you know, millions, literally millions in foregone upside that I would have made if I held on to the stock. Now, I have kind of got my revenge on that because what I did last year was I bought a trade, which is a three times levered Tesla downside. Mm. So for every dollar that Tesla has tumbled, I've got $3 back. And that has performed nicely, but not as much as I would have met if I could have just as sucked in my pride and invested in the evil that is Elon Musk. There you go. That's another example. Over my life, I've I've tried to sort of record in my mind all the investment mistakes that I've made. And that actually forms part of the morning porridge. I've, I've got this thing called Blaine's Market Mantras. And some of them are, you know, they're based on, oh, got that one wrong, or hmm, snafu. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, if you want, Andrew, I'll be happy to go through some of these things. If you got if you got one or two of them, we'd love to hear it. Well, the, the first thing you need to know about markets is that you know markets are not clever themselves. They're not artificial intelligence. All they are is a voting machine. But it's a voting machine that has a, a soul. And from that soul, the market has but one objective and one objective only. And that is to inflict the maximum amount of pain on the maximum number of participants. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, that is what always happens when we have the kind of insane market rallies that we had over the 2010-22 period. Now, if you just think about that time, in 2010, the U.S. economy was worth GDP $15 trillion. Today, it's worth $25 trillion. Mm-hmm. That's an increase of 40%. That's pretty good. How much do you think the stock market has risen in that period? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Tell, tell us. 270%. Yeah. So the stock market has risen in value seven times, nearly seven times, as fast as the value of the underlying economy. How does that possibly make sense? Why is nobody turning around and saying, I think the stock market's overvalued? Well, the reason for that is this whole thing about inflicting the maximum amount of pain on the maximum number of participants. It's all about persuading them to join the frenzy. And you do that by promoting FOMO, the fear of missing out. Mm. You do that by persuading them that, you know, auto driving is going to be real. No way. You know, here in the UK, we can't even make our trains run properly. And trains are basically a single, well, two lines of of metal going from A to B, and we can't make that work. How are you going to make cars work driving themselves? Come on. Yeah, well, they're having trouble with with trains in Ohio right now, too. So they need trains. Yeah. So that's one of the, the, the first things. I think one of the second mantras that I think is worth bringing out is, you know, one that I think sums up the way that the market goes from best to worst so quickly. And my mantra there is things are never as bad as you fear, but seldom as good as you hope. 
And I think a good example of that is, you know, we all predict that when interest rates started to rise, everyone thought this is the end of the world. It's going to be the end of stock markets. Everything's going to be horrible. But, you know, what actually happens is you do get a downturn and then the economy recovers. I mean, what you need to look at is ignore the worst and the best estimates and focus on the middle, the consensus, where often there is no consensus, because you tend to find that in the analyst community, well, stock market analysts will always pile into the buy, buy, buy side because, hey, they've got vested interest in selling stock and their origination departments are wanting to lend that client lots of money and and be their stock manager, that kind of thing. So, you know, you got to discount much of the verbiage that you read. Remember that 90% of bank analytics or research house analytics is written to be read by compliance officers. <laughs> the real secret of the world is to go out and do your own due diligence, use your own common sense, and reach your own conclusions. Problem is, if you're an idiot like myself, you'll often reach the wrong conclusions. I you remember I remember when I started in 1992 and uh, there were no compliance officers. Yeah, no, I, I remember. I mean, my my career has taken me through a couple of American banks. The best firm I ever worked for was Bear Stearns, and that was in I think the early 90s that we met our first compliance officer, and he was actually a great guy because. He saw his role as compliance officer was to enable us to do whatever we wanted legally. If I speak to my mates who remain in banking today, they now know that the role of the compliance officer is to stop you doing anything illegal or legal, just Mm. in case it might prove illegal. I remember my first boss, John Shrimpton, who later went to set up Dragon Capital with the Dominic Scrivens in Vietnam. About five years ago, I was talking to him and I said, so what are you, what are you investing in? He says, I'm long compliance. Yeah, that's not a bad one. <laughs> I think that's still got a long way to go. <laughs> All yeah. right, you got another, you got another tidbit there? Uh, let's see. Well, I've, I've actually got my list out here. Um, you know, so, so some great ones. In a difficult market, a bid is a bid is a bid and you should hit it harder than faster than the proverbial red-headed stepchild. I'm not sure you're allowed to say proverbial red-headed stepchild anymore, but in a difficult market, you've got to sell and you've got to sell fast. It was round about the time that Lehman collapsed and there was one of my clients was a big holder of highly leveraged notes issued by what we called a special investment vehicle. And it was clear that this firm was going to be in major trouble because of its leverage and inability to refinance. And he asked me for a bid in his position. And I told him, look, I think I can get rid of them at 90. Give me the firm order. Oh, 90, I need more than 90. I said, look, I can't. Um, The best bid that I'm going to get for these is 90. And he said, oh, no, I cannot sell. I put the phone down me. And 10 minutes later, he calls me up and says, okay, Bill, I will take 90. I need to check the bid's still there. Bids 80. I cannot take 80. Put the phone down on me again. He calls up half an hour later. Bill, I need to sell him at 80. Fill the trade. I said, well, I need to check the bid. Bid was down to 60. Mm. He eventually ended up selling them at 12 because he just chased that bid. 
down and down again. So the, the mantra that follows that is the, the first cut is probably not the deepest. <laughs> As Ron Stewart says. Uh, yeah. Which I don't even think that was originally his song, was that? I remember. All I remember is the Rod Stewart, which was very good. And of course, Rod Stewart's a Scotsman as well. So it's bound to be the best version ever. The first cut is the deepest. It's always better you know, to take that first cut and be able to walk out rather than wait for it to hit you and crawl out. I thought I thought you were going to say to him when he called back and says, you know, or when you said 80, he said, uh, he said, okay, I need a better price. And you were going to say, how about 50? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, there are other things you learn in the markets. And one of my earliest experience back in the early 80s, when I joined uh, an American, my first American bank, was getting a master class in how to handle a bid from our floating rate note trader. And he was just going out for lunch. And, you know, remarkably, he left me in charge of the desk. And he told me if client X phones up, whatever you do, do not buy the Bank of Londonistan or whatever it was, bonds. So I said, okay, I'll make sure to do that. Half an hour after George went out for lunch, I get a call from Bank of Londonistan asking if, or asking the client asking if I wanted to buy the Bank of Londonistan bonds. Now, in those days, you had to give a price. So I gave a, you know, a really low ball bid based on what I could see on the then only screen we had, which was a Reuters screen, and the bid was something like par. So I bid him 99. And the guy said, oh, okay, right, fine. And so George got back from lunch, and I told him what time. He says, oh, great, right. He gets on the phone and says, Hi, Client X. Hey, Bill just told me that, yeah, look, I absolutely love these bonds. I definitely want these bonds. You know what? I can buy them right away now at 98. And I go, oh, that's fantastic. And he sold it at 98. You know, the guy had completely forgotten I'd been at 99 10 minutes before. So, you know, it's, it's just that is the way markets work. They are not rational. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, a lot of good lessons. Maybe I'll wrap up by asking you, the question is, what's a resource that you'd recommend? Obviously, Morning Porridge as a start, but are there other things that, you know, think about the things that you learned from over the years and what are some resources that you'd recommend? Oh, they're the best resource for understanding what's going on in markets and what you should be doing is something that nobody else seems to use these days, and it's called a phone. And you actually call people and speak to people and ask people what their opinions are. And if you do that and you watch, you know, whatever screen you want to. I mean, a couple of years ago, I gave up using Bloomberg, not because I don't love it. The information's fantastic, but damned if I'm going to pay that amount of money for what I can learn just by talking to people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not me that's clever. It's the other people I talk to who are clever. They're the ones that give me the insights that make the markets work for me. So my most important tool, the phone. Currently, an iPhone. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, you notice that the young generation does not like to call and they feel like they're disturbing and stuff. And I always tell young people or anybody, I was like, call me anytime because I turn off my phone when I go to sleep. So you're not going to wake me up. And if I'm in a meeting, I'm not going to answer it and I'll call you back. But yeah, yeah. it's it's a great point. It, we we missed the, just 
that chat. And I think it's a great thing. We end up being reliant on email and all that stuff, but, you know, just pick up the phone. Well, if, if, maybe this is a clue for younger folk. I mean, I do use Teams quite a lot with some of my clients, and there's mm. that direct interface on clean on Teams, which is very, very useful. And you've just reminded me I need to speak to my compliance department about how we use that information. It's, uh, you know, one of the things that the difference between a phone and a video, you know, now it's so easy to do it. About two years ago, I really started thinking about the people that are close to me that are in kind of my inner circle that I you realize life goes by and, you know, you're not in touch as much and, you know, we're busy and all that. So I basically reach out to those people and say, let's do a video call, you know, this month or next month and catch up. And I'm I'm pretty good at that on a quarterly basis to make sure that I'm looking face to face with all of the people that I really care about or want to talk to, not just in family, obviously, but in business and all that. And, you know, it's it's never disappointing. So that would be a little bit of a tip from my side about for, for the listeners is figure yeah. out. The I, five I, or I'm, I'm not as convinced, Andrew, about the video call. I often find that clients tend not to stick the video on because they know it's going to be a fairly short call if we do a mm. video call. Sometimes, yeah, we have proper ones, but they can get too big. Nothing is better than a face-to-face -face yeah. meeting, but, you know, that isn't always going to happen. Today, I was going to be having this call from my office in London, but because both trains were cancelled this morning that would have got me there in time for something else i ended up having to do a call here and then i said i'm staying at home to have this call with you and i'll go in the this afternoon for a meeting mm -hmm. but face-to-face -face time with yep. colleagues especially and with clients is absolutely vital but i still think that you know the immediacy about hey brian what do you think of this yep that is absolutely critical in what That's we do that's the way we used to do it in the old days. In ninety, when I was started to be an analyst in ninety three, that was pretty much the only way. Yeah, well, back when I started doing markets, we were still sending small children up chimneys, but and it was good for them. There you go, good health. All right, last question: What is your number one goal for the next twelve months? I'm not going to say something silly like I've got this fantastic deal that I want to get closed and I think it's going to be the best deal in history. My number one goal for the next couple of months is to go skiing this weekend and to spend a large part of the coming summer off sailing my boat with my wife and my puppy on board. And if my kids come along as well, it will be even better. Fantastic. Where do you go sailing? Well, I live on the south coast of England, near the in between the towns of Southampton and Portsmouth. It's a village called Hamble. It's the centre of UK sailing. We'll just nip out of here in the morning and go sailing around the Solent, uh, mm. place across places like Cowes. But um, we also sail over to France and right the way along the English coast. We've been right the way down the French coast. Every so often I do a race that goes to the tip of Ireland. It's called the Fastnet Race. It's great fun if you like being out at the sea, getting rolled around and soaked, and you like the sensation of ripping up 50-pound notes in a cold, wet shower. I mean, yeah, sailing's great fun, but you know what? I absolutely love it. It's been my passion ever since I was a kid. And uh, if there's one reason I work, it's so that I can keep buying boats. <laughs> well, much better than airships, I think. Yeah, but that said, I have invested in airships. 
made no money. I have never invested in any yachting businesses because I know they never make money. <laughs> uh, well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Bill, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of AE Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, heat the beans and cool the pie. And eat that porridge. And that's a wrap on another great storage story. See, I am the worst podcast host. To help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.